blessed to be able to offer Sunday school and nursery this morning. So, little people, you are... We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 22 this morning. Um, I meant to print off um, paper for everybody, but we had a, a printer jam. So, I only got like 10 sheets out. I don't know if there's any left at the front. If you have a Bible, you can go there. The text is going to be on the screen, but we're going to do kind of a similar thing as last week. I'm going to read the entire chapter. As I do, just make a note, even mentally, of something that stands out to you that you maybe want to ask a follow-up question. Why do I have my mask on? Why didn't anybody tell me I was still wearing my mask? <laughs> Marion, it's okay. Interrupt me. Well, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, you look better with your face covered. Oh, thanks, Marion. I appreciate that. That's, that's nice. That's very kind. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll read the text, make a mental note of something that you want to follow up on. I'm going to frame uh, kind of summation thoughts around the major themes of Revelation that every Christian should be attentive to, open it up for any kind of uh, dialogue or questions, and then conclude uh, this chapter in this series with a, a final kind of thought. So Revelation 22, if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on screen. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, uh, sorry, the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer... Will there be any curse? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in this city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down and I worshipped at the feet of the angel who was showing them to me. But the angel said to me, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book, worship God. And then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let anyone who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. 
And I warn everyone who hears the prophet, words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we come to this final chapter, this climactic chapter where history is shown to be going somewhere. It has an end game. It has a purpose. History isn't simply a never-ending cycle of um, good, good struggling, struggling against evil, but evil wins. God establishes his kingdom on earth as in heaven. And if we review the purpose of Revelation, like what is the whole book for? It's to show its hearers and its readers, whether that was 2,000 years ago when it was given to an early group of Christians or now, it was a revelation meant to spark and spurn obedience to God, faithfulness to God, and especially faithfulness to God in spite of current suffering and challenge. It was given to people who, I think it's fair to say for most of us, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around the threat level that would, would have um, surrounded those in the first century who dared to get together publicly and say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Rome isn't the great city. I serve a greater king and the true city of God. And Revelation tells us that being faithful to God is possible because God has gifted us his spirit. He's held us in grace. He secures us with his love. And so now we can live in the midst of all kinds of threats, with a kind of a, a, a confidence that isn't built on the circumstances around us cooperating or even our own sense of like, I'm competent, I can do it, but a confidence that comes from knowing God has us and God is leading us into his future. There's a book by Michael Gorman who uh, some of you might want to read. It's uh, fairly accessible, I think. Uh, it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And I like that title because there's lots of ways you can read and interpret Revelation irresponsibly. And he talks about, well, actually, the whole title is Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, Following the Lamb into New Creation. Long title. But uh, Michael Gorman talks about seven of the major themes in Revelation. And he says, if you get nothing out of this book, you need to at least track with these themes and not get distracted by particularities in the text or elements of the text that you feel like are noteworthy. I mean, they might be, but we need to make sure we keep these things in view. I'm gonna review them very quickly. Here they are up. I'm gonna review them quickly and then ask if you have any questions about those or the text. And these kind of stack on each other. So the first is, and I hope we see it, Revelation is about revealing the fact that God and Jesus is, are ruling and reigning right now uh, in a way that we don't have full access to, obviously, but in the heavenly places, in a dimension that isn't fully integrated with our own yet, 
Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, when we sing songs about Jesus being Lord, that's what we're saying. We're saying, like, he's, he's, the, he's the big leader. He's the big kahuna. Like, he's actually in charge. No matter what we look around and no matter who we're tempted to look at and say, oh, actually, they're in charge. We're saying, I've placed Jesus in charge of my life, and actually, Jesus, this whole thing belongs to him. He's ruling and reigning. And the way, uh, another theme that comes out of that is when we say Jesus is Lord, what we're challenged to do as Christians and the church is to confront false, um, false gods, false claims to that lordship. Now, in the first century, that was really obvious and easy to do because you had an emperor who said, you can worship whatever god you want, but you also have to, in, you have to include me in that worship. You have to worship me along with these other gods. And you could say, oh, that's like brutal idolatry. Like, that's just textbook. Nope, not going to do it. And many Christians died, were tortured, were removed, were disappeared, we would say today, um, because of their insistence that Jesus is Lord. I won't worship Caesar. And Revelation talks about how there are these systems in the world that in sometimes obvious ways and sometimes subtle ways seduce the church into a way of life where they might say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, but they live for another entity, another ideology, another person even. And Revelation teaches us through its symbolism of the beast and the prostitute and the false prophets how sometimes these um, fake lords, these imposters, can be very seductive. They can have a religious dimension to them. They can have a political dimension to them. But there's all kinds of ways in which worldly powers call out to us and in a sense say, oh, you worship God? Like, that's fine. Like, we're, we're down with that too. Just worship us too. Or you want to worship, go on Sunday and sing songs to Jesus? That's great. But we own your Monday through Saturday. You can give Jesus Sunday. That's fine. And Revelation teaches us to say, ah, no, I, that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to live every day as if Jesus is Lord. And I want to understand what that means. And, and that's connected to number three, right? That we're tempted to embrace the empire's way of life or whatever. I mean, it would have been empire, the Roman empire in the first century, but what is that for us, right? What are the major dominating, culture-shaping voices that we listen to that say, this is the way to live. This is how you should organize your life. These are the things that you should value. And Revelation says, be very careful because some of those voices are going to be very seductive. And they'll even come with religious clothing. Maybe they'll even quote Bible verses. Revelation teaches us to say, no, I need to have the ability and gain a spiritual discernment to be able to separate not just truth from error, but truth and like error and truth mixed in with some Bible verses and people who are fast talkers and maybe saying things that sound right, but uh, I got to check them against God's word. And so we're called as a church to faithfulness to God, not simply reactively embracing the patterns and ways of life that we see around us. And we're called to resist. And uh, one of the interesting things that we're called to resist in a way that is, um, well, actually, let me come back. Let me hold that place and we'll come back to that at point six. So we're called to be faithful to God, and we are called to resist the powers and principalities of evil that attempt to seduce us away from God's way. 
And one of the ways we do that, and this is a thread that carries through Revelation, it's kind of hidden in plain sight, but we do that through worship. At the start of the service, I said, we don't just gather to, to learn and to pray together. Those are awesome things, but we gather to worship, to, exclaim, to proclaim through song that God is worthy. He is the most worthy. He is glorious. He's king. He's Lord. And that's actually the starting point of resistance because if you don't have that as your starting point, then someone else is going to fill that vacuum and say, well, yeah, God's a part of your life, but like this is Lord or I am Lord. And everything is going to get organized around something, right? This is the Bob Dylan, and I say it often, but it's, it's a great insight. Like you're going to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You can't have nothing in the center around which you're building your life. And the church is called to say, we want to put Jesus at the center. Even if it's hard, even if it's messy, even if we do it imperfectly, we want to go on the journey of saying, what does it look like to live with Jesus at the center? And it starts in so many ways with gathering together in worship. We probably don't have a strong sense on an average Sunday just how um, important and consequential and dangerous to our own um, sometimes spiritual apathy and laxity it is to get together and to worship with other Christians. Because God can use that to snap you awake. And God can use that to remind you, hey, you know what, I went through this whole week and I kind of didn't really think about God at all and here I am singing songs like, oh God, like give me a heart check. Like I want to reset and go back into this week very different. Worship is subversive. Worship is... Um, it's dangerous to kind of spiritual drift, but that's a good thing, right? Like we need the smelling salts of worship to remind us how good and amazing God is and to give us a different vision for what and who to build our life around. And then the way that we resist has to be faithful. That's point six. It has to be faithful, meaning we don't resist the powers by, um, and this is an image that comes to mind. I'm not trying to make any kind of subtle political statement about it. We, we, don't, we don't resist the, the powers by picketing on the roadside and saying like, Jesus is Lord, we're not gonna follow the worldly powers. We resist through faithfulness. And we resist, Revelation says, by being willing to lay down our lives for our enemies. We don't re resist by trying to bring violence or counterforce against who we perceive to be the enemies of God. Again and again, Revelation comes back to the martyrs, the martyrs, the martyrs. They were the overcomers. They didn't overcome their enemies by killing their enemies. They overcame their enemies by being faithful to the very end, even to the point of death. And they're celebrated again and again and again in Revelation. So the way that we resist worldly patterns and sinful patterns and being seduced down dark roads and the way we confront people who want to lead us in that direction isn't to kind of give them the love of Jesus right between the eyes. We care, we care for them. We love for them. We plead for them. We pray for them. We seek to love our enemies even to the point of death, like Jesus did. And then lastly, we live, and I know it's hard to do sometimes, especially at certain stages of life like mine, where there's responsibilities in all kinds of different directions, and you're kind of like, how do I live with this sense of the fact that, like, yeah, like, reality is not just going to go on like this. At some point, uh, you know, <laughs> Jesus is going to return, and there's going to be a new creation. And with that is going to come judgment and salvation, and I want to live quickened to that idea. I don't want that just to be like an abstract idea. And so we live with that sense of, yeah, it, it could be in my lifetime. 
It might not be. I don't live with a frenzied uh, anxiety around it. But I also don't live very casually, presuming I've got tomorrow and the week after that and the year after that and whatever. It's like, well, God willing, if I'm around in a year or next week. And so you live with this humble acknowledgement and understanding that we don't know how much time we have. So we go into every day seeking to love God as faithfully as we can and to love our neighbors as faithfully as we can because the time is short. There's a New Testament passage, it's not coming to mind, the reference, but it talks about how the days are evil, like the days are kind of working against us. Time isn't on our side. So these are the big themes of Revelation. God reigns, evil's real, and it often uses political or religious partners to advance its cause and seduce uh, God's people to, uh, to a way of life that is self-centered and self-absorbed. We're called to resist that through faithfulness, through worship, through getting together in contexts like this, big and small, to dream and think about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What could we do? What does it mean to live differently with all these voices telling us, no, 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 this is how you should live. And we follow the pattern of Jesus, serving those around us, giving our life up for those around us, so that when we come to that place of standing before God, God says to us individually, amen, and to everyone else, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, so some of, those are some of the major themes. Revelation 2 has a lot in it. Uh, again, I, I don't know. We can put up on the screen if people have questions about specific verses, but let me just pause there and take any kind of observations or questions that you might have as we kind of wrap up the series or follow up to anything that I mentioned this morning. I know. Well, I gave you like 16 minutes to kind of like warm up and think about it. Don't worry, I have plants. I have people that I've told I'll call on. Rick's always one of them. No, I I was like, no, don't do it, Jeff. It's like, hmm. Nothing? Guys, the kids are going to be angry if we shut down the service early and they don't get a full episode in. Okay, thanks, Judith. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. The question is, um, at the end of verse 22, when it talks about not adding or subtracting from the words uh, of the prophecy, does that mean taking things out of context or conversely maybe adding, kind of declaring, oh, this is what this must mean, like kind of by inference and, and adding to it? I, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't really addressed that question in my preparation. My instinct is to say probably not because um, I think this is speaking specifically to um, take, just removing sections or adding, right? Where there's going to be a temptation maybe later on to say, oh, like there's a paragraph here, but we've got two or three things that we'd like to add here. Or someone well-intending, uh, well-intentioned saying, um, well, I mean, a really one good example, which is... Um, 
maybe strikes us as like a little harsh, like maybe someone would have been tempted with uh, verse 15 to say, I don't know what we do with Jesus calling people outside of the new creation dogs. That seems like it's kind of harsh. So let's just like remove that, even that word, right? So there can, we're always tempted, even in our own lives, right, to, um, I mean, hopefully we wouldn't say we're doing this, but it's very tempting to say there are parts of the Bible that I'm like so jazzed about, awesome, let's have more of that, and there's some parts where God reveals things and we're like, Ugh, that, that cuts to the heart or that offends my sensibilities in certain areas, and so I think this is just kind of a culminating um, warning against um, seeing this prophecy, this grand vision, as something which individual Christians or even the church gets to sort of massage throughout different times. Like this is given for God's people. It's uncensored. It's right from Christ. And therefore, all of the beautiful, strange, awkward, challenging parts of it are, are meant to be received. We might not understand them all, but we, we grapple through it. Any other comments or Dan? Yep. Yeah, I, I just want to point out that um, in Revelation, it's the only book in the Bible that actually blesses you to read it at the beginning and it blesses you right at the end for understanding it. Mm-hmm. And I think that just goes to prove how important this book really is to us understanding and not being fooled in the end and realize the events that are coming towards us and how we can withstand those. And it's only going to be by knowing the scriptures really well. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that through Revelation, that Revelation builds consistently on other scriptural prophecies, other scriptural pictures. And so in one sense, it becomes incredibly dangerous to, um, te- to, to try and read and infer what Revelation is teaching us while we are kind of disconnected from the rest of Scripture. That's why, in general, I'm not a big fan of people who fixate on Revelation, not because it's not important, but because you actually need a really large foundation theologically in order to not read Revelation irresponsibly, because it's a text that, because it's a vision and and because it has these symbols, if we're too far away from um, a cultural mooring of those symbols and what they mean and a biblical mooring, then we can become tempting well, it becomes tempting to kind of say, oh, well, this is what this symbol means to me. Or I could say, oh, look, maybe, right, like maybe the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And you can make these connections which have no theologic to them at all, but we can impose our view. And so it's very important to, yeah, be reading through Revelation, but making sure that we're availing ourselves of resources so that we as the church are living into sort of these patterns of faithfulness to God. One more question, or yeah, Lydia. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Those two? Yeah, that's, those are, uh, there's probably two or three sections here 
that are particularly tricky, and that would definitely be one of them. Uh, depending on who you read, and you know, generally speaking, I read broadly evangelical, um, I think what I would consider to be theologically pretty solid people who are really trying to grapple with the text and not play incredibly fast and loose and kind of bring their own interpretations into things. Um, throughout Revelation, you've heard this refrain, the time is near. And if you remember, for some of you, if we've talked about four different ways to view Revelation, one of them is the preterist view, which says that almost everything in Revelation, except for these final few chapters, happened by the close of the first century. And so what we're reading in Revelation is ancient history for the most part, because when Jesus said to those Christians, the time is soon, like that was literal, like he meant it. He wasn't saying it's soon, like two or 3,000 years away, um, and yet here we are 2,000 years removed, and this part of the revelation has clearly not happened. The eschaton has not happened, the, the end, the, the culmination of God's purposes. And so soon becomes a um, symbolic summons, some, are, some commentators would write, to say, um, to make sure that we're living faithfully, to not have this view that says, oh, this is probably not going to happen forever. We, again, we got lots of time and sort of presume on the grace of God. That next part in 11, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong, that's weird because it kind of sounds like the, um, that the invitation is like, well, just keep on keeping on. Like you'd think there'd be a call to repentance, like let him who is doing wrong or vile, like repent and turn. And this is where some of the cultural context comes in and there are different views here, but I think the one that makes the most sense to me is just this um, recognition that in the current age, uh, this revelation isn't going to lead to, like for the first Christians receiving this, this isn't going to lead to some global transforming, like all oh, the whole world's going to become Christian. That until Jesus comes back, there's going to be two broad ways. Those who are seeking and striving to honor God and those who are um, ignoring and rejecting God in different ways. And almost every commentator that I've read said, you know, this is not to say that people are locked in to those paths. It's just a way of saying Christians shouldn't be surprised when they see before Jesus' return things not just getting better and 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 more people becoming Christians and more people loving Jesus. And then we transform the earth. That's kind of like the post-millennial view, right? So that's not like super clear. I know Lydia, but I think that's um, trying to get at what, what goes on there. But that's, a tr that, that's definitely a tricky one. You're going to talk to 10 different people, uh, theologians or commentators, and you're going to get seven or eight different nuances there. Maybe one more quick observation or question. Oh, Opa. That's my Opa. That's why I called him Opa. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Revelations has a sense of urgency about it. And uh, <clears throat> there's historical reasons for that too. But uh, one of the results of that is that the language in Revelations tends to be quite strong. And they use language like enemies and other religions and this kind of thing, which tends to be to fit those into our life, uh, it, it 
can be a struggle, but it also can be just simply, uh, uh, you, know, you don't really see that. You see anything mm. in our world. So I guess the invitation would be for you to talk about something as simple as getting comfortable in the world that is ours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, that's a good word. For those who are, are watching online, um, my opa just expressed that, you know, some of these big concepts can, can seem so abstracted and so large, empire and the symbolisms can seem so rich that they seem disconnected from our lives, but you can drill even some of these uh, principles uh, and themes of Revelation down to themes that, again, are already in the New Testament, right? There's nothing in Revelation that is new. It's a recapitulation of the biggest themes and ideas from the Old and the New Testament. And one of those themes is that as Christians, we don't become so comfortable in the culture and society around us that we just reflexively lean into anything that's happening because we just want to go with the flow. That doesn't mean that we reflexively counter everything that's happening, right? Because Christians can do that sometimes. Culture's going right, we're going left. Oh, the right is actually a really good path. No, we're going left. We have to be not of the world, right? And not being of the world doesn't mean not being a part of society. It means not participating in patterns and paths that are clearly what God does not want. And so Revelation is a summons. It's a call that says the church has to be distinct, not by being reactive one way or the other, and just going, going with the flow or countering at every turn, but looking around and saying, what does it mean for us to honor God in light of this new technology, this new opportunity, this new conversation that's happening? And we might find that we can overlap a lot with the broader context of culture. And there might be places where we say, oh, I'm not sure to what extent we can cooperate. And then there's, you know, there's going to be and should be times where we say, we can't cooperate with that at all. And so Revelation, and this is why it's become such a, uh, a favorite book of mine, is that it really does pull you down into the question, am I living for Jesus every day? Or am I letting another voice, another powerful cultural voice, shape, be the dominating shape of my worldview? Okay, let me close with this thought. This is um, ripped unapologetically from Robert Mounts' commentary on the book of Revelation. It's a good summation and close. He says, with this vision, the book of Revelation is complete. It's served to inform readers of that day and Christians across time that God is sovereign and that his eternal plan for the human race will in fact be carried through. Now, during that interim, where we are now, there's going to be hostility, there's going to be opposition, but what he has decreed must come to pass. And so people are faced in every age with the crucial fundamental decision of pledging their allegiance to the lamb or to the beast. To all false prophets, false paths, false ideologies. And those who choose to wear the mark of the beast will ultimately share his fate and the great city of Babylon will fall. But those who choose to follow the Lamb who bear the marks of redemptive sacrifice will ultimately be brought into eternal fellowship with God in the new Jerusalem. And the end of all things has been laid bare before the readers of Revelation. All uncertainty regarding the end times has been removed 
Believers are encouraged to stay faithful and to trust God and to wait expectantly for the return of Jesus. He will forever put away all evil and usher in the eternal state of blessedness. And so with revelation we say, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, may this book, um, Revelation, continue to do a work in us. May it challenge us out of comfort, out of complacency, out of spiritual numbness and apathy. May it lead us into a deeper and richer walk with you. And not just at the individual level, God, but within our marriages and our friendships and our families and our community. May we learn to walk and encourage each other to stay faithful to you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.